0: This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen with our ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker.
1: By the way, you can also get the premium service on Substack, .substack contrarianpod.substack.com. Exact same benefits, exact same price. This particular episode is brought to you by the Connecticut Economic Literacy Initiative. Do you know a young person, aged 8 through 15, interested in learning about the stock market? What about learning how to budget and make money in ways that schools don't teach? How about why countries are rich or poor? What about the economy? What if you could learn all of this while also competing for cash prizes? Two high school students have launched the Connecticut Economic Literacy Initiative in order to explore these concepts and many more. This program is not exclusive to Connecticut. It is entirely virtual, open to anybody aged eight through 15 who has a high-speed internet connection and can join on Zoom. It's 100% free and 100% virtual, consisting of activities like groups of buyers and sellers, trade simulations, budgeting, and stock picking activities with cash prizes for winners, and much more. So visit the CELI on Facebook, or Twitter at CTEconLiteracy for more information. I am here with William Silber, a former professor of finance at NYU Stern, currently senior advisor at Cornerstone Research. Now, Bill, the reason I have you on this is because you are publishing a book called The Power of Nothing to Lose, subtitle The Hail Mary Effect in Politics, War, and business, it is being put out by Harper Collins, and is available for people to order. And I can, I'll, we'll put that link in the show notes later on. And I read the preview of the book, but maybe you can just, in, in our, your own words, kind of tell us a little bit what this is about and what this means for risk from an investment perspective.
2: Yeah, so the best way to to get into this, I think, is to explain how this book got started. Uh, I've been thinking about it for a long time, 30 years, while teaching at NYU. Um, I teach a course in investments, which is how to choose among different securities, stocks, bonds, and real estate. And I quickly realized that the same principles um, apply to normal people and uh, generals, presidents making decisions under uncertainty. And the one focal point that was, uh, that jumped out was when people have downside protection, limited losses, they tend to become reckless and almost gamblers. Mm. And uh, this turned out, this became important during the course, which was kind of technical, and mathematical, students get tired of that. So I invented a little uh, game um, uh, towards the end of the semester uh, that would divert their attention a little bit. And that is, I took a list of 10 securities, commodities, uh, and asked them, to choose the one that had the biggest profit over the last month of class. And if they chose correctly, they would get one and a half points added to their grade. And if they chose incorrectly and got a bad one, nothing would happen except uh, we would sympathize with them. So the question is, how do they choose? What's the strategy? Well, of course, some of them try to guess about prices, which is a fool's game. Nobody knows which way prices are going to go. So what's the strategy? And the strategy, optimal strategy turns out to pick the security that has the biggest volatility. Hmm. Today, that would be Bitcoin. Why is hmm. that? Well, that gives you the biggest possible upside. It also gives you the biggest possible downside. But who cares about the downside? Why? You don't lose points on the exam for picking the worst. So the best strategy would be pick the riskiest security. Back then, it was crude oil. Today, Hmm. it would be Bitcoin. And that's all
1: because of downside
2: protection.
1: Interesting. Now, how does the price of thing uh, things affect things? Because with Bitcoin, we've had a huge run-up, obviously, over the last couple of years. I know there's been a lot of volatility in there, but as we record this, it's past 45,000, I think, which is kind of, at, I mean, what was the high, 60? I don't even know. But 64. It's, it's, yeah, but it's pretty high, I mean, compared to sure. where it was. So what? how does that change things? I mean, wouldn't that limit the upside? Well, you know, at, at any point in time, the price
2: of a security, the price of a commodity, the price of Bitcoin is a balance between buyers and sellers. It's, I believe, the best possible estimate. And now we could disagree, but the consensus of the market is that that's the price. So I can't tell whether that's too high or too low. I rely on buyers and sellers, the collective wisdom to tell me, that's the fair value. But we do know, going forward, Bitcoin is just gonna be more volatile, both to the upside and the downside compared with anything. Just like we knew 30 years ago that oil was the most volatile thing. You know, Somebody could stop producing or somebody could suddenly, there could be a frost and demand that would increase. So the one that has the biggest volatility suddenly becomes the most attractive. And by the way, that's also the principle underlying something that most of your listeners are familiar with, which is call options and put options. Both of those place high value on big, risky security. So it's not as strange as it sounded when I just mentioned it. Mm
1: -hmm. Interesting, okay. But still there is something, you mentioned not the fear of having things to lose. And when you don't have that, when that is removed from the equation, it creates, it makes people more reckless. And, And your book cites several examples from history. But to go back on that, once you've gotten some gains, like oil at $20 a barrel, I mean, okay, I know we had negative futures on oil for a second for at some point, but generally it's not, something like that is not gonna go negative in real terms. So if it's very cheap, you have a lot of upside and it's very, when it's very expensive volatility or not, you have more downside. So the price of things doesn't factor into this at all? Or is well, that beyond again, the means? Again,
2: that's the same principle as options because mm-hmm. even if the price is low, if you're risking the same amount of money, you can always lose half. So, True. you know, even if I buy a dollar stock, well, if I'm only risking a dollar, but the right way to compare them is, I'm gonna put a hundred dollars in this or a thousand dollars in this and a thousand dollars in that. And the, the half, I can always lose half, as my, half my money, no matter what the price is. I'm mm. gonna, can I ask you a question? Of course. I may edit it out, but go ahead. Sure. No, no, no. This is, uh, this is relevant. That's nothing personal. Believe me. I would ask you, when do you buy a call option on a stock? And don't overthink it. Just give me your knee-jerk reaction. When do you buy a call option?
1: Well, me personally, I don't. But I, well, when will ins- someone buy a an call? An investor, option? I would think when they want to have less risk but more potential return and they're ultimately they're bullish on the stock, I would assume.
2: So that's a very sophisticated answer. Oh, okay. The oh, need, it is. Okay. And I expected nothing else. But the knee-jerk reaction of most people is, oh, I buy a call option option when I think the stock price is going to go up. Well, that's true. But if you think it's going to go up, why don't you just buy the stock and save the option premium? And the answer, which you said very clearly, was I think it's going to go up, but I'm worried that it might go down. Mm -hmm. And I buy the call option for downside protection because Mm -hmm. my loss is limited to the premium. So this is a perfect example of now that I've already paid the premium i want this stock that is the that is the most volatile because it has the most potential upside so that principle is what gets translates into when people presidents generals ordinary people view as have view themselves as having nothing to lose they have downside protection for whatever reason they can afford to gamble, and they do. Hmm. The message of the book is that is okay when they themselves bear all of the costs, Hmm. but what happens when they become reckless and other people bear the costs? like a general who attacks to gain the glory of victory. And who bears the cost? The poor foot soldier. So that's when we have to worry about reckless decision-making. You want to buy an option on a stock? You're going to lose the premium? I don't care. But if I'm a general and I'm about to lose the war, and then I say, all right, I'll take a shot. That's when we have to worry about the collateral damage of these reckless decisions that are promoted by nothing to lose. I think I went a little too far there, but that's my that's the argument.
1: A couple of anecdotes there. First of all, I'm not sure if it's just, maybe we're taking this metaphor too far, but if it's just generals who, have, who are losing, because there's was, there was a book I saw I picked up once about the closing hour of World War I, or the closing hours, they had agreed on this armistice, November 11th at 11 o'clock. And some of these lower or middle ranking officers decided that they would take this opportunity on the, on the Allied side to attack, even though that they knew. And so they knew that the, the, the war was over and that they had won. <laughs> so it w- there was a, several casualties on this, in these last couple of hours of fighting oh. on the Western Front. Your example is a perfect illustration of the collateral
2: damage of nothing to lose. The Americans had nothing to lose then. why The war was already won. But the reckless decision-making, and I don't remember who the general was, as you were speaking, though. Pershing, yeah. Pershing was the general, but on the other side, the Germans had, had a general that was in fact rolling the dice at the end because he said, look, we're losing anyway. And we're, gonna, we're going to, we, we, we might as well take a shot. Mm. And there were lots of casualties as a result. Mm-hmm. So that you're, you were precisely correct when you yeah. said, they had nothing to lose after all. The war was won, so they yeah. might as well take a shot to get a promotion, perhaps.
1: Yeah. I'm, right. Interesting. And also another real quick anecdote reminds me of a conversation I had with a hedge fund manager several years ago where he told me, and I, he was kind of making a joke, but kind of not. He said that he loved gambling and he loved gambling so much, he does it every day with his investor's money. But-
2: <laughs> well, you know, this, this is, there is a chapter in this book called the rogue traders. Mm. And in point of fact, almost every trader for a commercial bank or an investment bank has this skewed payoff, big upside with limited downside. What's the big upside? Well, if I make a lot of money, I'm going to get a big bonus. On the other hand, if I lose a lot of money, I never, ever have to repay the bank for the losses. So you would say, well, you're gonna lose your job, right? Well, you might, Hmm. but you'll get hired by another firm because you start with a clean slate. So traders at banks have have this skewed payoff, big upside, limited downside, which is why they often gamble and if they are not monitored properly by the own management, they can bring down the entire company. That's the story of Nick Leeson, mm-hmm. who worked for uh, Baring Bank, which was a 200-year-old financial institution. Helped Thomas Jefferson finance the purchase of finance the Louisiana Purchase. And in 1995, Leeson lost so much money that Barings had to declare bankruptcy, mm-hmm. precisely because traders face skewed payoffs, big upside, a limited downside, which makes them become, which gives them the incentive to become gamblers, and that's why you have management to try to
1: rein them in, hmm. and the Volcker rule too. Don't forget, which also the
2: Volcker that. the Volcker rule was dis- was initiated. I hate to bring up my my last book, which was a biography of Paul Volcker, hmm. Volcker, the Triumph of Persistence. We were I was writing that book precisely when the Volcker rule went into effect to try to eliminate, to try to reduce the danger to financial institutions because of reckless trading. I'm hmm. not going to go into the, the whether that was the best way to do it, but that was the idea
1: behind the Volcker Rule. Interesting. This all begs the question. We talk about these things, cryptos, options, and there being a lot of appetite for it nowadays and certainly a lot of appetite for risk. And it sounds like we are in a bit of a situation where people have kind of become gamblers. What do you think about that, about the present day, about people's view on risk? And is there a lot of gambling going on now in securities markets that will end ugly?
2: Well, you know, look, I, I, I think that most people with most of their portfolio have been taught that diversification is the only continuously available free lunch in the market. It never goes away. You can always reduce your risk by diversifying. And in fact, you can adjust your risk exposure by changing the fraction that you hold in stocks and uh, and and commodities and real estate versus CDs which earn nothing but protect you but protect you against losses so i think most people have learned that lesson however there are some who say i'm going to take a flyer i'm going to buy and i'm going to be very specific now I'm going to buy an out-of-the-money call option on a meme stock. Now everybody knows what I'm talking about because we see it in the newspaper. I'm going to buy an out-of-the-money call on a meme stock. What does that mean? When BlackBerry was trading at $14 a few months ago, a $20 call, so that it gave you the right to buy BlackBerry at $20, cost $1. So for $100, you could have the right to buy BlackBerry at $20 a share. Well, BlackBerry is selling for $14. You know, you're, you're never going to exercise that option until BlackBerry goes above that. So you have $100 lost most of the time, but if BlackBerry went to $30, you would make $10 a share. If it went to $40, you would make $20 a share. And that's the dream. I view those people as buying a lottery ticket. It's the same thing as buying a lottery ticket. Should you do that? Yes. If you want entertainment, (laughs) not if you want sensible investments. So I view buying... Out of the money call options on meme stocks as a substitute for the lottery. And when should you do that? Tell me what your entertainment budget is for the month. If it's $500, you can buy $500 worth of that. That's pure gambling. Hmm. It is not investing. Why do you do that? Because you have downside protection. Hmm. The most you can lose if you buy that out-of-the-money call on BlackBerry is the premium you paid. It's $100. So you say, oh my, BlackBerry is $40. I can buy this call at $20. And we know that BlackBerry can double, triple, or quadruple. The answer is those are highly unlikely events. Even though you read about these things doubling and tripling in the newspaper? The answer is, you only read about the winners. You don't read about all the other uh, 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 meme stocks that went down. There is something called selection bias in the newspapers. What's selection bias? You hear about the winners,
1: not the losers. Sure, but it's also a market where everything is going up, and so you're going to have more winners. and just wait until things turn uh the newspapers or websites now nowadays i'm um, coming from that business unfortunately i i uh, can speak to that but they will uh also chase negative stories just as much as they will positive ones because believe it or not those sell more newspapers or website clicks than the positive ones but yeah i haven't your seen point very many sto- you
2: know i see a lot of stories about i i grant you that Big negative stories, like Archegos a few months ago, Big negative stories, but not the ones, ready, that do nothing. When people buy call options, they look at the upside, and they should, because that's all that matters in terms of their payoff to them. But I forget the the, the most, the the normal statistics is 90% of call options expire, worthless. Hmm. That's not a big story when they do nothing. When they hmm. go down a lot, yes, but right.
1: not when they do nothing. Hmm. Very interesting. All right, Bill Silber here. I want to take a short break and uh, hear from our, our sponsors and then make some uh, some announcements and then come back and talk to you a little more. If you are a premium subscriber, don't touch the dial. You will not get the break. And to become a premium subscriber, visit the website, contrarianpod.com. Dot substack.com. We'll be right back.
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded, transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech.
1: The Connecticut Economic Literacy Initiative is not exclusive to Connecticut. Any person ages 8-15 through 15 is welcome to join the programs on Zoom. It's 100% free, 100% virtual, consisting of activities such as groups of buyers and sellers, trade simulations, budgeting, and stock picking activities with a prize for the winner, and much more. Visit the CELI on Facebook or Twitter at Literacy for more information. Okay, welcome back everybody here with Bill Silber uh, of Cornerstone Research. Bill, this is the segment of the podcast where we like to talk, ask the the guests a little bit more about themselves and about their background, how they came to this stage of their career. And so, yeah, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that. I know you've had had a long career in academia and and elsewhere. So yeah, take us back and and tell us how you ended up where you are now.
2: So um, I started uh, in uh, (laughs) 1966, which is like 150 years ago, but it's only about 70, okay, or less than 60. Uh, When I started at NYU, I had a PhD from Princeton. Uh, I started at NYU in 1966, I was seven at the time. Uh, Actually, I was 23, and I stayed at NYU for my entire career with some diversions. I quickly learned that I liked financial markets, and I actually wrote a whole bunch of academic papers on the subject, and suddenly I said, "Ah, I want to be able to try this stuff, not just report on it. So in about 1982, when uh, the futures markets opened at the New York Stock Exchange on the stock index futures, it was pretty easy to become a floor trader. So I actually turned in my notebooks and became a floor trader on the futures exchanges. And I don't know if people have ever seen the movie Trading Places with Eddie Murphy. It's the best movie about uh, commodities you ever wanna watch. So watch it. That's what I did for a living. It was the most exciting thing I ever did. I traded for two years full-time on the New York Mercantile Exchange where oil options, oil is traded. I traded on the COMEX where gold was traded and I earned a nice living doing it. And then I went back to academia and stayed there for a while. And then along about 1988, a well-known hedge fund called Odyssey Partners, which was run by Leon Levy and Matt and Jack Nash. Legendary investors uh, asked me to come and trade a portfolio, run a portfolio for them, which I did. And I just recently recounted a story that I learned at Odyssey, um, which is relevant for today. And the question is, what's an investor's exit strategy? So what's an exit strategy? Well, let me tell you a very quick story. Back then, this is before the Euro was invented. There was something called the exchange rate mechanism where you had the Italian Lira, the Spanish peseta. these were all those currencies. They were very high interest rate currencies. Uh, the Spanish peseta would yield 12%. The German mark yielded only 4%. So you could buy the peseta, sell short the mark, and earn the differential. Well, I introduced this to Odyssey Partners, and we had two very, very profitable years. So the third year, I suggest to Jack Nash and Leon Levy, let's double. Odyssey's allocation to what was called the carry trade. It's the carry trade where you carry a 12% interest rate with a 4%. So Jack looks at me and he gives me a little newspaper article, uh, maybe two inches long, with the title, Mutual Fund Introduces Carry Trade to Small Investor. So I said, so? Jack says, when the public gets in, we're out. The exits aren't big enough. So you have to worry when everybody is in one direction. Everybody loves the stock market. Everybody loves the bond market. You got to worry. Are the exits big enough when some people want to get out? And I think to some extent, people should be thinking about that today.
0: Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information.
1: So do you think that this is a time to, for people to reduce risk and sell stocks? So I'm glad you asked that question because
2: um, I, I write a, a, a weekly LinkedIn post and uh, it's, it gets about 10,000 views on LinkedIn and a, and a couple of likes and a couple of who told you that that's right and so on and so forth. Uh, And about two weeks ago, I, uh, the headline in my LinkedIn posting was, it time to reduce equities exposure. And the first sentence said, I am not calling a top in the stock market. Nobody knows. No one knows. If they tell you, don't listen to them, especially if they want to invest your money. So the time to lower your stock exposure is because if you normally hold, let's pick a number, 80%, 75% of your net worth in a risky mutual fund, say an index fund, and 25% in CDs, even though they don't earn anything, they prevent risk. They they lower your risk. In the past three years, the stock market has gone up 50%. From August of 2018 to today, it's about 50%. Your 75% allocation is now way above 80%. Much riskier than you thought you got into. It is time to, and I call it, rebalance your portfolio. Sell to get back down to 75. You say, well, what happens if the stock market goes up? You still have 75% in risky securities to earn it. But if the stock market goes down so that prices of your equities are now only 70%, you can then add to your portfolio to bring it up buy low at 70%, sell high at 80%, just like a pro Hmm. without knowing anything because they don't either. So the idea was just rebalancing your portfolio after a big run-up is sensible. I don't even want to say prudent. It is perfectly consistent with how you should approach investments in a modern framework.
1: Hmm. Fair enough. Now, what do you do with the proceeds? Because you say bonds have run up a lot. You know, your savings and CDs aren't yielding anything. And in fact, less than inflation. And you have inflation. So what do you do? So I would do one of two things with,
2: with the proceeds. I would either hold CDs which have a not, I know they earn nothing, but when I take 5% from my index fund and put it into CDs, I've reduced my risk exposure. I know that I'm earning nothing. If you want to buy TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protection Securities, that's also a good allocation. I know they have a negative nominal yield, but the yield, including the repayment for inflation, this year is going to be at least four and maybe five percent so i would reduce my risk exposure the cost is pretty high these days because you know i used to get one or two percent in cds okay now i'm getting nothing but the objective once again was to do what reduce my risk
1: exposure so then why lock it into CDs? Just put it into savings and you get to I would thing. put it into
2: three-month CDs and roll it over until the Fed has to raise short-term rates and I'll be ready to cash in my three-month CDs and earn 3 or 4%, whatever the rate turns out to be. The nice thing about three-month CDs is you get a new chance every three months.
1: Hmm. You I don't see. lock
2: any. You're not. You don't lock in a penny.
1: It's not locked in. It's a three-month maturity. I get that, but savings is a zero-month maturity, and you could—it's even more liquidity. And you the, could
2: do that. I don't yeah. mind if you do. If you like a savings account, do that.
1: Because I don't know what the yield, or the, the yield is on three-month CDs versus savings. It depends, probably where you're going, but can't be. That zero. It's no, there's yeah. no difference. Yeah. So if you prefer, if you meant by savings accounts, yeah, I would say perfect. Yeah, perfect. But then you still have the fact that your money is earning less than inflation. I so. understand that, which is why I said maybe you
2: want to buy some tips. I see. You have right. to be care- you have to be careful when you buy tips to make sure that it is in a non taxable account because you pay right. tax. You pay taxes on the accrual associated with inflation, mm-hmm. even though you don't get it till the end.
1: Yep. Not to mention if you sell, you get a capital gains and stuff. Yeah, that's correct. You got to be careful. All right. This is all very interesting stuff, uh, Bill. So I'm curious now as far as your views on other parts of the market, and I imagine we don't have to cover cryptos again or options since those are uh, by their nature risky investments. Um, but what about some other things and, and your views on, on them, um, you know, other asset classes? You know, you Can have, I fill you... in
2: the blank for you? Go ahead. So you mentioned cryptos. We talked about that. But we didn't talk about precious metals. We didn't. And precious metals, gold and silver, belong in every, ready, risky portfolio they are a hedge when everything goes bad they will go they will be good when everything else is good they will be bad but you don't need them if you keep your holdings to between 3% and 5% of your risky assets so i would hold a diversified portfolio of stocks in my risky allocation, I would hold 95% in stocks and real estate and so on. And 3 to 5% I would put in precious metals, gold and silver, and just leave them there. Don't touch them. Hmm. They are there to counterbalance movements in stocks and bonds. When the world comes to an end, you'll need a silver dollar to buy a loaf of
1: bread. <laughs> Fair enough. You're obviously you've uh, you wrote another a book, another one about silver, and you know obviously about precious metals from from the comics and from your career. But I'm curious that is it? I imagine you've studied this the risk protection for precious metals. And the reason I bring this up is because I remember '08. And in 08, everything sold off, including precious metals. So back then, it wasn't a good good hedge. But from what you've studied, you think they are?
2: Well, uh, so it, it depends on when you look. And uh, precious metals really did pay off in 2008. If you look at the time right before and right after the lehman bankruptcy which is which occurred in september of 2008 if you look right before and then 6 months later precious precious, or or 2 weeks actually 2 weeks later precious metals were up 20% 20% Was that right? okay. yes 20% and the stock market of course had declined over the next 6 months by almost So it was a huge, and it protected. Then if you look in the middle, precious metals did start to decline below their original level. Why was that? There was that huge safety net brought on by the Fed, which was the correct thing to do. However, if you held on to precious metals in your portfolio, and waited till the big problem of sovereign risk. If you remember in 2010 and 2011, Ireland, Italy were on the verge of bankruptcy. They couldn't repay their their sovereign debt. If you take precious metals at the peak of sovereign risk in 2011, gold is up. 250% 250% and silver is up 400%. Not mm. because silver is better than gold. It's a better hedge. It is why far more volatile than gold. Mm-hmm. I would hold both of them. Keep it in your portfolio. I recommended silver when right when I had in March of 2000 or actually April of 2019, I had finished my silver book. I was being I was being interviewed at the time uh, and I wrote an article for another for Market watch. that's not mm-hmm. a I mean market watch is a platform. Mm-hmm. Silver was $15 an ounce. I said, now is the time to buy silver. Why is that? It went from42 dollars an ounce in September in 2011. Down to $15 an ounce. Why is that? The world became a much safer place. The time to buy ready portfolio insurance. Portfolio insurance is things that move in opposite directions from stocks. The time to buy insurance is not when your house is on fire, it's when nothing is happening. The time to buy portfolio insurance was when silver was at $15 an ounce. It's now depending on when you look 25 or 26 not because i was right that silver was cheap i was right that you buy portfolio insurance when the premiums are cheap what's the premiums are cheap when
1: silver and gold are relatively inexpensive because the world is a safe place Hmm. I wonder if you have any thoughts on how to get that exposure. You mentioned silver dollars. Are, are you saying people should buy actual physical gold and silver or ETFs or futures or what? Yeah, does that's matter. A,
2: that, by the way, that's a great question. So, first of all, I give my grandkids silver dollars on their birthdays. Why is that? Ah, so again, so so they should know that they silver dollars, these are the American Eagles, which are one ounce of pure. Not because that's going to take them through a tough time, but to be aware that there is something called a precious metal that belongs, and I want to be very clear, as a small part of your portfolio. I once had an interview, and this was with Paul Volcker when we were talking about uh, his book. I hold precious metals ready, and I hope they go to 0 <laughs> Why do I hope they go to zero? Because everything else is going to be up. So I give my grandkids those silver dollars and I hold some of them just as, you know, just to have around. But I buy the ETFs, uh, the gold and silver ETFs. If you had a nice backyard with a nice trench that was protected from everyone you could buy physical silver and gold and bury it there keep it there like like it. everybody must have a french grandmother sometime in their background your french grandmother would say never leave home without a bar of gold buried in the backyard why is that not because of inflation but because of sovereign risk mm. We in the United States don't think about the government being overthrown. Or maybe we now have a little bit more of a probability associated with that. But in Europe, governments get overthrown during war. That's why the French are big gold holders. So physical gold and physical silver is the ultimate protection. Most of us can't safeguard That, although there are some places where you can buy that safeguard.
1: Yeah, there are the storage facilities and and safety deposit box and such. Yeah.
2: I'm not predicting the end of the world. I'm just saying this is like an insurance policy. You don't predict your house is going to burn down, but
1: you have insurance. Gotcha. Very interesting. Bill Silber, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor podcast today. Maybe in closing, you can tell our listeners and how they can find out more about you, about the book. As I mentioned, I'll put that link in the show notes. Um, You mentioned you're on LinkedIn. I took a look and you are not on the Twitter. So where else can people find you? So people can find me on LinkedIn. And Mm -hmm. if you if you want to connect with
2: me, I will be happy to connect with you. Just put my name I'm in careful the, with that
1: now, but okay.
2: Well, well, no, no. I will look at your resume <laughs> and see whether it is appropriate. I've got right now 10 people on a list that I will not connect, that I did not connect with. But if you are normal and your resume wow. suggests that you are normal... I will connect with you. The second thing you can do is you can look at my website. And on my website, I have uh, will you put the my website on I'll, your absolutely I'll put the on link. Your, with my, the, put mm-hmm. my link. More than happy. You will see you will you can come there. You What's can the look URL? At, the link? W L silver one word. William excuse me, William L Silber.com. Okay, well, one word, William L. So no dots in there. William L. S. I. L. B. E. R. You Got put it. that in, you can visit my website. I also am on a Wikipedia page. You can yeah. look at that. Um, and is um, that answered? Did I have that to answer? That
1: you? certainly answers the question, yes. And the links to those will be in the show notes along with everything else. Wonderful. Well, thank you again. Thank you all for watching and listening. And we look forward to speaking to you again next time.
2: My pleasure. And I enjoyed it as
1: well. Thanks.
0: Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.